Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ronnie and Reggie Cray, the infamous Cray twins, have long been etched into London's criminal legend. The Crays ruled the city with fear and their fists. In a period of excess, they brushed shoulders with film stars and politicians before their behavior became too wild to ignore, as did the trail of blood and terror they left across London's streets, pubs, and clubs. Courting publicity and pursued by scandal, they loved to mythologize themselves. But when it comes to the craze, where does reality end and legend begin? This is the craze part three, richer than ever. March, 1969, the Old Bailey, London. The world-famous courthouse is packed tight with members of the media and celebrities alike, all watching on with fascination, glued to what is, at the time, the longest murder trial in history. For over 30 days, defense and prosecution have traded blows, with momentum swinging back and forth. Within the sweltering courtroom, the atmosphere is tense. Amazingly, the two people who should be feeling the heat most, those in the dock, Ronnie and Reggie Cray, seem relaxed, even mildly amused. They stand trial for the murders of Frank Mitchell, Jack the Hat McVitie, and George Cornell. On the streets of London, just outside the court itself, it is widely known that the twins are responsible. The question is, however, whether it can be proven in court, and the Crays are confident it cannot. The brothers stand upright, shoulder to shoulder, sharply suited, as always, barrel-chested and glowering. They listen to the arguments. They nod and take notes and smile politely at their accusers. It's the kind of confidence that only comes from a combination of power and wealth. Leonard Nipper Reed the ace detective in charge of the investigation has pulled out all the stops. He's worked tirelessly to try to turn a number of the Cray's associates into informants. He's even managed to get some to agree to testify in court. Disgruntled underlings, slighted business partners, vengeful rivals, one after the other step into the witness box. The stories are captivating and shocking in equal measure. They paint a vivid picture, but none land the killer blow in terms of getting a murder conviction. 
Not surprisingly, a number of witnesses drop out at the last minute. For some, the fear of speaking out against the craze is too much. The trial isn't going how Reed had hoped, and with the possibility of the craze walking free, it's more than just his career that's on the line. But Nipper Reed has one more card to play. The crowd inside the Old Bailey waits impatiently. The atmosphere is so thick in the courtroom you could reach out and touch it. The word is out. A new witness has stepped out of the shadows, and they are about to take the stand. The door opens and heads turn. There are a couple of gasps. The Crays crane their necks to get a good look at who it is, and their jaws drop in recognition. In particular, Ronnie Cray's eyes flash like thunder as he stares at the young woman with pure malevolence. Her heels click across the polished floors. Her gaze is fixed dead ahead. As she avoids making contact with the countless watching eyes, a murmur sweeps through the crowd Order, demands the judge. The witness takes her place on the stand for all to see. She is known by many in London's East End, but more importantly, the Crays know exactly who she is. Scared but defiant, she now stares them down. Nipper Reed watches intently, sweat on his brow. The entire trial hangs in the balance. It all hangs on what his star witness is about to say. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. The infamous Cray twins have finally been brought to justice and now stand in the docks, facing the prospect of life imprisonment. They are firmly in the spotlight, and the Crays love every minute of it. The press lap it up, too, and with each news report, the gangster's infamy grows further. Who's the mystery witness? Will her testimony be enough to put them behind bars? Or will she buckle under the Cray's intimidating gaze? After the biggest raid in the history of the Metropolitan Police, Ronnie and Reggie Cray are arrested. The citywide dawn operation sends shockwaves through the London underworld. A number of the Cray's associates are also arrested, including the Lambriano brothers, brown-bred Freddie Foreman, and their elder brother, 
Charlie Cray. The Cray twins, however, remain unflustered. They know just how to deal with the authorities, and in any case, who'd dare speak against them? Kate Beale Blythe is a writer and documentary filmmaker and the co-author of The Craze, Prison Years. She has spent hours interviewing the Craze's closest associates and listened to the stories from those who were there. They've been arrested before. They've been on TV after they've been arrested, boasting how they're innocent. They feel as though they're untouchable at that point. I think they thought they had the police in their pocket. They were friends with celebrities, politicians. They are media darlings, and their names sell thousands of newspapers. So the print media laps up each and every morsel of information that they can find, and regurgitates it for an eager, inquisitive public. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Their trial was a celebrity masterpiece. They had Charlton Heston in the public gallery, for goodness sake. People flocked to watch them in court number one at the Old Bailey. The idea that they would be found guilty was just inconceivable. The man who caught them, Scotland Yard detective Leonard Nipper-Reed, has been doggedly chasing the twins for years. But now he's got his men, he needs the charges to stick. Fortunately, whether through luck or judgment, Nipper Reed has sprung his trap at a crucial moment. It's been building for months, but right now, the Craze gang, the firm, are at their most vulnerable. Cracks are starting to show in the once impenetrable criminal circle. Nipper's plan is to force those cracks wide open. There's the old phrase of dividing and conquering. So trying to divide the firm and divide the loyalties and play them off against each other was a natural operation. And to a certain extent, it worked. But there were some still who held true. In the weeks building up to the trial, Nipper Reed works tirelessly, trying to wear down Cray's associates hoping one or more will turn on their bosses. In an effort to isolate each gang member, Nipper keeps all the members of the firm separated, including the twins themselves. But messages are still passed between gang members via lawyers and confidants. And custodial solicitor visits are permitted on occasion. 
It's at one of these solicitor meetings that Reggie gives out orders on how the Krays want the trial to proceed. A few chosen lieutenants will take the fall for the murders, with the promise of compensation, with the twins themselves going free. It's a time-honored tradition amongst gangsters. But, of course, it all depends on a delicate balance of loyalty and fear. In February 1969, during a custodial visit, trusted firm member Albert Donahue sits opposite Reggie Cray, who lays it all out. Two other lieutenants will take the fall for the murders of Jack the Hat McVitie and George Cornell, and Albert himself is expected to stand for the murder of Frank Mitchell. Donahue leaves the meeting with a sense of dread. Why should he go down for his unhinged bosses, or Freddie Foreman for that matter, the man who actually did the crime? But then again, can he refuse? This is the precise moment Nipper Reed has been waiting for. His entire case hinges on getting one or two key inside figures to turn. He offers them a way out, give evidence against the craze in exchange for reduced charges, and get the twins locked up for good. Albert Donahue accepts, as do a number of other firm members, though some remain loyal maintaining Omerta, that ancient code of silence. Nipper Reed just hopes it'll be enough. While these backroom deals are being done behind the scenes, the twin's mother, Violet Cray, does the rounds. She visits all the arrested firm members, knowing them to be good friends of her boys unjustly targeted by the police, bringing them comforts and words of kindness. Violet is continuing to be the good, loyal mom that she is, who doesn't necessarily believe the extreme things her sons have done. Clearly she knows they're, you know, dodgy businessmen and that their money isn't legit all of the time because she's lived a very good lifestyle from their earnings. However, she continues to be a mom and you take them food in prison and take their associates' food in prison. She does so, unaware how some of these familiar, friendly faces, men who have sat at her kitchen table enjoying a pot of tea or a Sunday roast dinner, are now plotting to put her boys behind bars. March 1969. The trial begins. It is a media circus, a monstrous affair of flashbulbs and celebrity with no shortage of theater. And this will go on for 39 days, becoming Britain's longest ever murder trial. The Crays, their older brother Charlie, and eight others stand accused of committing or aiding in multiple killings, as well as a host of other crimes. But while a carnival atmosphere surrounds the proceedings, down in the docks of the Old Bailey, the air is suffocatingly thick, heavy with betrayal and the fear of reprisals. It was a trial where they could all see each other as the prosecution and defense were speaking. They were standing side by side. So it 
must have been a very intimidating place to be if you were a firm member. And it must have been extraordinarily intimidating if you were thinking of turning against twins. So although somebody like Chris Lambriano deeply regrets not turning them in now, you can understand why at the time, if you're standing next to Ronnie and Reggie Gray in court, you're not going to say anything. You can understand how that happened. Nipper Reed knows that the outcome of the trial, while full of evidence against the craze, is still in the balance. He has put the word out that now is the time to talk about the craze, free from intimidation as they are behind bars, and that this is the only chance to keep them there. Eventually, one person does come forward, a brave young woman who believes in doing the right thing, the person who will change everything. Patricia Kelly, the young barmaid at the Blind Beggar pub, was working when Ronnie Cray executed George Cornell at point-blank range, and she saw everything from about six feet away. The Blind Beggar is a really good example of arrogance because Ronnie Cray walked into a pub with people in and shot George Cornell. It's as simple as that. And he assumed that those people wouldn't say anything, that his reputation was fearsome enough that he would get away with it. And he almost did. But according to those in court, it was the testimony of the barmaid of the blind beggar who won the jury over. And when she spoke and Chris Lambriano said she had a voice like an angel, it was her testimony that actually put the nail in the cray coffin. When the barmaid points across the courtroom at Ronnie Cray, bravely facing down the fearsome gangster in court, the case is effectively won, and all the other pieces fall into place. The twins are sentenced to 30 years imprisonment for murder, each. It is an astonishing punishment for the time, with the judge famously remarking, In my view, society has earned a rest from your activities. The unthinkable has happened. The once untouchable Cray twins have been caught and convicted. But if you think their story ends there, you haven't been paying attention. The twins are split up and sent to prisons at opposite ends of the country. Ronnie is sent 200 miles north to Her Majesty's prison in Durham, while Reggie is dispatched south and overseas to Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight. For the inseparable Cray twins, it's a seismic event. For the first time in their lives, they are completely alone. When they are sentenced, they are incarcerated and they are separated. Both are enormous blows to the twins. Having had such freedom in London and running the West End and the East End and having a life of Riley to suddenly be in a prison cell, it's a shock to the system. And then to pile on top of that, being separated from your twin. The twins stay in contact through an almost compulsive non-stop stream of letters to each other and to their mother, Violet. Violet Cray, herself feeling the strain of the separation, begins a campaign to get her boys reunited. 
she pleads with the prison governors to put them back together, not just for Ronnie and Reggie's mental health, but hers too. Eventually, Violet, presumably with some expensive legal aid, wins out. Ronnie and Reggie Cray are reunited in Parkhurst Prison. Which is just as well for them, because they soon discover that being big time on the outside world puts a big target on your back once you're inside. If Ronnie and Reggie are going to survive in prison, they must close ranks again. They will need to fight their way to the top of the food chain. It's a task they're well suited to. The early 1970s, Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. Seagulls swoop over the reinforced Victorian red brick buildings. Britain's answer to Alcatraz, perched on a rock in the middle of the freezing swales of the North Sea. Deep inside the Category 8 high-security prison, inside a cell, sits a sink. A sink that is full of an oozing red liquid, spattering vibrant crimson against the pure white of the porcelain. A tap is run to wash some of it down the plug hole out of sight. On a bunk on the other side of the cell lie two towels. They are laid out side by side. An empty tomato ketchup bottle is placed on one. A second is placed on the other. The towels are rolled up and the two bundles are placed on the cell floor. Two identical shoes stamp on them, eliciting two muffled crunches. There is a knock at the cell door. Reggie and Ronnie Cray turn their attention from the towels on the floor and look over. A man stands there, holding a broom handle. He's N, the man says. The Cray twins calmly roll up their towel parcels and head for the door. The three walk down the corridor, passing the rows of open cell doors. It is communal time in the prison, time to mix. Ignoring the buzz of chatter along the stone walls and the clang of iron bars in the distance, the Cray twins waltz through the prison, their towels tucked under their arms, as if they are off to the pool in an elite hotel. They arrive at their destination, standing in front of the open cell door. Their escort nods and stands by to keep watch. The Crays carefully reach into the bundled towels and pull out the jagged bottleneck of a broken ketchup bottle. Suddenly, the twins are armed. They swoop into the room, giving their target no time to react. They overpower him. Ronnie sits on his chest and starts stabbing at his face with chunks of glass. Reggie, right behind him, slashes at the man's stomach. The screams ring out, but go unheard, or perhaps ignored.
After a few frenzied moments, the Cray twins leave the cell and saunter off, towels over their shoulders, casual as you like. No one knows what prompted the attack. Some say the man has simply annoyed them. The message, however, is clear. Word spreads like wildfire through every cell in the prison. Whatever you do, for fear of gross retribution, you do not cross the craze. Just as the Krays are scrapping for their survival inside Parkhurst Prison, something happens on the outside that suddenly transforms their fortunes and secures their legend for decades to come. In 1972, a book about the Krays is published, and it's a bestseller. The most fundamental transformation in the Cray twins' lives was the book written by John Pearson called The Profession of Violence and the publication of that book in the early 70s. So although they'd had this heyday in the 60s and they'd gone to prison, they didn't really find the fame they desired until this book was published. And this book became such a cult classic that it propelled their name, the Crays, into the mainstream. And they became a symbol of... Robin Hood-style violence, or they became an anti-authority symbol through that book. And from the early 1970s onwards, once it was published, they were able to use the Cray's name to great effect, even from within prison. In one fell swoop, the book gives the Cray's what they had always wanted, international notoriety and movie-style glitz to their exploits. The book is hugely popular, and rightly or wrongly, it cements the craze legend as working-class anti-establishment icons. Just as important, it also brings a slew of business opportunities. The name Cray suddenly means something again, and they discover that being imprisoned is no barrier to making a fortune. They franchised the craze name out to people and earned money doing it. And a number of people I've spoken to are convinced that they made more money inside prison than they did outside of prison, lending their name to protection rackets or bodyguard companies or other places around the UK to say they were associated with the Cray twins, brought them an enormous amount of money. And then if you add on to it the T-shirts or the merchandising, and then you add on to that the film rights, which is a whole other story, you know, there's some serious money coming out of Parkhurst and Broadmoor. They sign off on book deals, TV scripts, naming rights for this and that, and the cash flows in. But it flows out just as easily. With life sentences stretching ahead of them, there's not much point in saving for the future. So, they also give away their money to friends and family. Through the 1970s, the Crays become the celebrity criminals they always dreamt of. Wealthy, respected, idolized. 
All this has a mixed effect on their day-to-day -day lives in the brutal confines of Parkhurst Prison. Known as the Godfathers, many inmates worship them, but others see their growing fame as even more of a reason to go after them. Parkhurst is hard and extremely violent, characteristics that one might think would suit the combustible Ronnie Cray down to the ground. But it brings out the worst in him, pushing him into darker territory. His mental health deteriorates once again. In July 1979, now in his mid-40s, Ronnie is finally certified as insane. He is diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and a psychotic, and he's transferred to a very different kind of facility, Broadmoor. There is no doubt that Broadmoor was a nicer place to be than Parkhurst. From all accounts, from everything I've read and spoken to, you had more freedom and you were treated as a patient rather than as a prisoner. And that's the fundamental difference. Broadmoor is a hospital for the criminally insane. Parkhurst is a category A prison. Broadmoor is a high security psychiatric hospital and somewhere that Ronnie can thrive. He has contact with younger male prisoners, many of whom quickly dote on him. So much so that when people visit him, it appears he has a number of butlers attending to his every need. He enjoys smoked salmon, has a Herod's pork pie shipped in every Friday, and is served tea and cakes on fine china in his comfortable cell. Soon his incarceration is looking more and more like a luxury retreat, leaving some to question whether Ronnie was in fact truly as ill as his diagnosis suggests. Ronnie, yes, he had a cell essentially that he was in, but he has more freedom to walk into communal areas. You know, Ronnie had velvet curtains in his room. He was dressed beautifully. He was being treated rather than punished. And that is the fundamental difference. Whether he was supposed to be there, whether it was appropriate for Ronnie to be there, whether he perhaps at times enhanced his madness to ensure he got there, we will never really know. It's, it's not uncommon for criminals to pretend to be insane or to pretend to have the symptoms of a mental health condition in order to get an easier ride in Broadmoor. Back in Parkhurst Prison, Reggie must now fight for his survival alone. Separated from his brother again, he is viewed as more vulnerable, almost gettable. He is targeted and can never let his guard down, living in a perpetual state of alert. Reggie maintains a rigorous training regimen, hundreds of press-ups per day, to make sure he's in peak condition to ward off attack. Unquestionably, Parkhurst was a horrible place to be. It was a place where, yes, Reggie was in a fortunate position of being a relatively top dog, but the idea for any younger up-and-coming criminal to hurt Reggie in some way was something that everyone aimed for. 
he was there as a target. He had a target on his back throughout his Parkhurst years and then subsequently into other prisons. Because if anyone could damage Reggie, that would mean something to the criminal community in a negative or positive way. So Reggie was definitely having a tougher time, I would suggest, in, in his incarceration. But the enforced separation once again takes its toll. Even the guards remark how Reggie, the wisecracking, humorous East Ender, now becomes quiet, withdrawn, and increasingly downcast. On the 7th of August, 1982, the twins receive news that devastates them. Their dear mother, Violet, has died at her flat in Bunhill Row. The twins are distraught. They get to work planning her a proper send-off in the East End Way, with a huge, lavish funeral, with horses and carriages crawling lined streets. It's also the first time that Ronnie and Reggie are allowed out after more than a decade behind bars. Both are under very tight security on the day, but they are able to see each other and friends. It becomes an iconic event, one that the East End community of London long remembers. The funeral, though, was a big gangland affair. It was another who's who of the, the East End. Ronnie and Reggie were allowed into the church. It is the time when the two of them were able to see each other and they were able to see other people. So as well as you know, mourning the death of their mum, it must have been an emotional time for them. Perhaps acknowledging the obvious trauma of separating twins, or perhaps just due to the influence the craze still wield, through the coming years, Reggie is frequently permitted to visit his brother, Ronnie, in Broadmoor. But prison records will later reveal that these meetings are far from joyous reunions. Their peculiar relationship is fraught, damaged even. Guards observe that the two brothers often sit for hours in eerie silence, hardly exchanging a word. Whether it's that the relationship was always more love-hate than we realize, or that something fundamental shifted between the two after Ronnie's transfer to Broadmoor, it's impossible to say. But it's something that seems to weigh heavily on Reggie as he continues his insular decline away from his brother. It's a decline that would go on for years, and the twins' relationship would never recover. In March 1995, at the age of 61, Ronnie suffers a massive heart attack in Broadmoor. He's transferred immediately to hospital, but dies two days later. It falls to the prison governors to let Reggie know of his twin brother's fate. Hearing the news that your twin brother has died and will never be free again must have been devastating for Reggie. My understanding is that Freddie Foreman, the craze enforcer, was in prison at the time with Reggie. I think he was on a different wing. However, the prison governor kindly let Freddie Foreman go and comfort Reggie and share his grief because it wasn't just grief for Reggie. I think you know, it was grief in the East End underworld that such an iconic figure had died. Another mammoth funeral is planned, with no expense spared. Reggie is allowed out to attend, 
but reportedly becomes fearful that he'll be targeted by a gangland hit that would wipe the Cray name out for good. But it is obvious, when he gets there, as he stands in handcuffs over his brother's coffin, that the world has moved on. It's the mid-1990s now, and they are all aging men. Anybody who might want Reggie Cray dead is either already dead themselves, or just as old as he is. The event passes while a solemn affair, without incident. The final loss of his twin is cataclysmic to Reggie and causes a huge life U-turn. Perhaps, in some mournful way, he's set free. He becomes a born-again Christian and even finds love again, all these years after Francis's death. Roberta is a production assistant who meets Reggie in 1996 while preparing a documentary about the craze. Their love appears genuine, and they get married the year after. In the late 90s, it seems Reggie is somewhat reformed, regretful, and ready to be released. A probation officer remarks on the damage his brother's separation and eventual death has had on him, and suggests he could be set free. He writes, Changes to Mr. Cray's attitude and reappraisal of his values have been the result of a long process. If nothing else, Mr. Cray has had plenty of time to think over the past 30 years. In the year 2000, after 32 years, Britain's longest ever murder sentence at the time it was given, Reggie is finally released. But for one reason only, Reggie has been diagnosed with incurable bladder cancer. He only has weeks to live. It's the 1st of October in the year 2000. Sunlight streams through the windows of the Townhouse Hotel, a countryside inn in the English rural county of Norfolk. On the outskirts of Norwich, where the herons cry and the river rolls on interminably, it seems an unlikely place for one of the country's most notorious criminal kingpins of all time to have chosen to die. In a bedroom on the ground floor, as a maid trundles by with a trolley in the corridor outside, the mood is tense and somber. It always is at times like this. The few onlookers are waiting for a particular moment, a moment of release, and for some, relief. In the bed lies Reggie Cray, he has lost so much weight during his months of battling bladder cancer that his eyes have sunken right into his skull. He looks halfway along the journey to the other side already. His breath comes in wheezing gasps, and with every additional one, it might be his last. Roberta Cray holds her husband's hand and watches him pensively. 
Time rolls by with interminable slowness as she feels the pulse in his fingers weaken. Freddy Foreman, brown bred Fred, the fearsome gangster is himself also elderly and stooped. He moves closer and regards his old friend through thick spectacles. He takes Reggie around the shoulders. It's all right, Rage, says one old man to the other. Tears gather at the corners of his eyes. It's a scene that might play out in any other nursing home anywhere in the country, though the nature of this old friendship is perhaps less common. Freddy covered up a number of the crazed murders, dumping weighted corpses into the sea to keep Reggie and his brother out of prison. It's all right, Foreman says to his friend, helping him out one last time. A couple of moments pass, and suddenly, stillness. Everybody looks at each other. Reginald Cray lies in Freddy Foreman's arms, not moving. He's peaceful. A silent wave passes the room. He's gone, says Fred. Another moment passes. The body of Reginald Cray spasms wildly as all the air in his body is forced out in one final terrifying blast, death literally rattling his vocal cords as it goes. Everyone in the room jumps out of their skins. It seems, even in death, Reggie Cray took one last opportunity to keep everyone on their toes. Only this time, when his body falls limp, it does so for good. Being with Reggie Cray when he dies is seen as a badge of honor in the underworld. There are actually a number of different people who have claimed that they were there in the final few days and who was there, who was holding his hand. By listening to people, it does seem that there were certain key characters in there and one of those was Freddie Foreman. The death of anyone is an incredibly sad moment, but it's a very symbolic moment as well. And being there has a real sense of importance for people. I don't think it was necessarily the power that Reggie Cray carried that was so symbolic about his death. It was more about what he meant in terms of times gone by and that this was an era that was coming to a close, that he was one of the last gangsters of that time. Like so many famous outlaws turned folk heroes, society rushes to forget the ugly truth replacing it with a distorted legend. The legacy of Ronnie and Reggie Cray lives on, increasingly sanitized and commodified. Films continue to be made. People still buy the books. Some even wear the t-shirt 
emblazoned with those two famous faces. So the appeal of wearing a crazed t-shirt was big then and seemingly is big now. We're still fascinated and the symbol of the craze is the symbol of anti-authority and anti-establishment and a slightly cool 60s vibe. What people don't realize is what they're actually wearing on their chest are two murderers who murdered for selfish financial gain and ego. It's not a thing to have on your chest. It's not like having a Robin Hood on your chest who you know, robbed from the rich and, and gave to the poor. These are brutal murderers who were too stupid to do anything else other than use violence. Perhaps it's best said by Billy Cornell, who still remembers the night his dad George was murdered in the Blind Beggar pub. I hate the craze and anyone who is part of their family. And worse, the people who hero-worship them today as some kind of glamorous Robin Hoods of the East End. They were vicious and evil. Next time on Real Outlaws, we return to harsh realities of rural life during America's Great Depression, on the eve of what history will remember as the public enemy era. A pair of star-crossed lovers would soon embark on a bloody war against the world. And in doing so, capture American hearts forever. It's the wild ride of Bonnie and Clyde. That's next time on Real Outlaws. Real Outlaws.